But if you are just joining today, or if you've been gone for a few weeks, we're in a new series now uh, called Misconceptions, and this is the third of eight Sundays that we're going to be going through this series. And this is a, a bit of an outside-in look uh, in this sermon series, where we start with a common misunderstanding that uh, Christians have uh, about the faith. And then we take a look at a really a multifaceted uh, view of the scriptures to kind of build our insight and the truth of what, uh, what it is the Bible actually has to say about the Christian life. And today we're going to go through a pretty common misconception, I would say, among those who are searching or maybe new to the faith and, and maybe even those who have been a Christian for a long time. Uh, but it's the misconception that the Christian life should be easy. And I would love to say to you today that if you come to Jesus, if you follow him with your whole heart, that your life will just be simple, easy with no discernible problems, and everything will just kind of fall your way. Uh, it, it would sound great, and, and sign me up right away if that were the case, but but that idea is actually a, a pretty gross misrepresentation of what the Bible tells us that life is like as a Christian. We know through experience that being a Christian doesn't always make life easier. In fact, it, it could be the opposite. And the idea of if you do good things, good things return to you, or that if you please God, he'll make life easy, is actually a concept that we find in other uh, false world religions, like karma. Or appeasement is a big thing in many world religions, that if you make the God happy, uh, he'll, he'll, he or she will give you good things. And that's why many might be praying to the rain gods right now, hoping that they can make the rain gods happy, that they would get rain on the land. But that's not quite how it works in the Christian faith, that even if you are faithful, and even you've done uh, well in this life, it doesn't guarantee an easy or a painless life for you. And so this, this line of thinking is, is somewhat logical and natural to come to. That if you're a parent or you've had a parent, you know that if you're a child, the parent wants what's best for you. And so if you're a child of God, God would want always what's best for you. And if he wants what's best for me, then that means my life should be easy and enjoyable as, as possible. And then if or when that doesn't happen, you start to wonder, either something's wrong with me, I've done something wrong, or, or something's wrong with God. And he must not love me as much as I thought he did, or he's not as powerful as I thought he was. But this line of thinking is very dangerous, because it's kind of like a thread, a loose thread on your faith. And the more you keep pulling on it, eventually your faith may unravel. Because there's been many variations of this thought through the centuries. Like, how can a loving God uh, allow evil in the world? Or how does God let bad things happen to good people? And these are actually some of the most common reasons that people walk away from the faith altogether. But the question really is, why, why must a, a Christian struggle in life? Why does God allow Christians to suffer? And I said, as I said, people have wrestled with that for many years, but thankfully, as we see today, the Bible provides some really solid answers and insight into why the Christian life isn't always easy. But before we get into that today, let me just pray for us. I think this message is really important for everyone here, and maybe this is a message that's important for you to share with others. We just want to pray that God speaks to us all individually. Pray with me. So Lord, we do just 
uh, wrestle with this really hard question today. And uh, God, I just pray through your Holy Spirit that you be speaking into each and every one of our lives as undoubtedly all of us here have gone through these seasons, these trials and hardships, and we ask the same, the same questions. But we can know, Lord, that you love us through it all. And even when life might be difficult, uh, God, these are the moments that you use to shape us and to form us and, and ultimately to make us into better people and to expand your kingdom. So, God, I pray now that your words, that I would speak them now and that we'd be hearing them and that we'd uh, understand your truth in this. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at four main scriptures today. I'll, I'll try to remember to give you plenty of heads up uh, before we read them, so you can flip there in your Bibles. But the first one we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 23, we'll, we'll look at. And the insight we gain from this before we read the scripture is that Jesus himself told us that when we become a disciple, there's a personal cost we have to to, to pay. And, and by that, I don't mean that there's some admission fee that we pay to become a disciple or there's some sort of refame, re, repayment. Uh, God gave everything to us through his son, Jesus. It was a free gift that we don't have to earn. But really, this is addressing up front that when we come to faith in Jesus, it's not just a casual faith or something that becomes an accessory to our life. Jesus isn't here just to add to your life. But rather, following him comes at great personal cost in a worldly sense, that we lay down much or all of who we were, and now we give it over to Jesus. So the verse is this, uh, 23, I'm actually going to read 23 through 25. That Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? Now, there's a good chance that these words are not new to you. These are very uh, well-known verses, and it's often the case that when you become a disciple, what's important is that you count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. That there's a big difference between believing in Jesus and what he can do and being his disciple. Simply believing in Jesus is actually pretty easy. And if you took a poll across our country, I'm willing to bet that the majority of people believe in Jesus. But to be his disciple is much different. And we have three main parts that we'll break down here. That's denying yourself, to take up your cross daily, and to follow him. But to give some context of this specific verse, Jesus is speaking to a wide group of people. And at this point in his ministry, he's becoming very well known for his, uh, his speaking, his teaching, uh, but especially for his miracles, that he's done many miracles at this point. People have seen him heal the sick. Uh, he just recently, before this, uh, fed thousands with uh, a few loaves of bread and, and some fish. And there's many people that were starting to follow Jesus around because they could see all of the amazing things that, they, that he could do. But they weren't really interested in giving their life to Jesus. They're more interested in what Jesus could give to their life. And that's the big difference between believing in Jesus 
and being his disciples. So Jesus makes it very clear as he speaks to this great crowd, if you want to be my disciple, there is a cost up front that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now this is not easy. And anyone who's gone through the process of being a disciple knows that there are daily struggles in that. And Jesus told us that it won't be easy, but it will be worth it. And it starts first with denying yourself. And, and this doesn't mean just uh, asceticism, which, which some people think if they can give up enough for God that it will please God. And we've seen people through the years go through long uh, uh, bouts of hunger or thirst, or they remove themselves from society and, and they're denying themselves their basic rights, thinking that it will somehow impress God. But I'm sure he's thinking, I, I didn't ask you to do that, but I suppose that's great. The, the idea of denying yourself here really is moving past a life of self-centeredness. That you start to live for something greater and bigger than yourself. And culturally, that's really hard for us to do because we live in an individualistic and capitalistic, uh, consumer-driven culture where, generally speaking, if you want it, if you desire it, you feel like you're entitled to it. And that's what our culture tells us over and over again, is what you feel and what you desire is your truth, and you deserve that. Now we have to give up on our own agenda for living, and to live for something bigger, to live for Jesus. And the idea of self-denial is one of the most foundational, yet difficult aspects of the Christian life. In other parts of the Bible, it's, it's written as dying to yourself. It's not easy, and it's a daily process of denying yourself and whatever selfish desires you may have. In another place, it's called self-control in Galatians 5, and this is a fruit of the Spirit. And what that means is acting against your natural impulses. So the great part about this is when you deny yourself, initially it's very hard, but now you are, are strengthened by the Spirit to do it more and more. And over time, it becomes more natural as a disciple. But up front, it certainly is not easy. And then he tells us we need to take up our cross daily. Now, this really communicates the extent of our self-denial, that being a follower of Jesus is not just a one-time commitment. It's, it's a daily commitment. Now, they were already culturally aware of what a cross meant at this time, a crucifixion. This is before Jesus was crucified. But many that Jesus was speaking to here, perhaps all would have seen someone be crucified at this point, where they carry their cross down a long road. And what it communicated was, this was a one-way journey. So our discipleship with Jesus is not something we can ebb and flow in and out of. But when we carry our cross daily, we're communicating that we are following you through the thick and the thin. And there's no turning back. Be ready to follow him through whatever comes in life. That's where often we, we ask ourselves, would I be willing to live for Jesus? I think all of us would say yes, but the tougher question is, would I, would I die for Jesus? Would I follow him all the way to suffering or persecution or maybe even death? Would I die for Jesus? It's, it's a question I hope none of us have to answer in our lives, but... I think what Jesus is telling us here is that we should probably consider that. 
consider that. That's the extent of our commitment to him. And finally, that we would follow him. And that's, again, where the rubber meets the road in our faith. It's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's another thing to follow him. Not just denying yourself, but following Christ, his commands. See, following Jesus comes with certain implications. And if you're one who views faith as casual, that you can come in and out as you please, or that you're only a Christian on Sunday mornings, I think you'll always be confused why it feels so hard. But the more you're yoked with Jesus on this journey, he tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So he's not talking about life itself, but discipleship with him. Over time, we understand that he gives us strength and peace and courage to follow him more deeply as we go. But the beginning of the process is difficult. It's not as easy to follow Jesus as some may think, but it's certainly easy to come to him in faith. And he walks with us along the way. Next thing we understand is that Jesus tells us we should expect troubles in this world. And this is going to be out of John uh, chapter 16, verse 33. Now, nobody likes trouble, right? At least you shouldn't. And so when Jesus tells us there's going to be pain and hardship and trials in this life, nobody naturally would be excited by that. So that's why I wanted to say up front that if you're one that avoids any kind of trial and hardship, it, it doesn't make you a bad Christian or a bad person. Right? It makes it you a natural person. And God's desire is that you uh, one day will have no trials in life. But we have to understand that Jesus did not share what he's about to share to be a buzzkill, but rather to give us a proper and correct perspective of life. And so in verse 33, this is Jesus now speaking to the disciples. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What he's in context here, again, telling the disciples is, is he just told them that, that he would be leaving soon, that the disciples would go through a really tough time and feel the pressures of the world and maybe have that moment individually where they say, is this, is this worth it? Do I really want to stick with this? And we know that they all did. But Jesus told them this to give them the right perspective, but also to give them peace. That through whatever comes, and many things will come, I will be with you through it. So know that I'm there, but also remember that I've overcome the world. None of this is a surprise to me, and none of this is out of my control. See, Christians know that life is not always easy. And if you've been a Christian for more than a day, you know that things don't magically change. Hardships, heartaches, they still come. And if you look through the Bible from beginning to end, you know that even those who are most faithful to God weren't given a magically easy life. In the Old Testament, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we see the patriarchs who had gone through all sorts of trials. The prophets, the kings, the judges, even those who were most faithful to God still had a lot of difficulties in life. Job himself. I mean, we could have just done this sermon through any of the 42 chapters of Job. 
And a man who literally lost everything. God didn't put him through these trials so he could find his faith. He was a man of God before it even happened. And he became stronger through it all. In the New Testament, the apostles, the disciples, all of those who were following God did not have easy lives. They dealt with opposition, persecution, dangers, and ultimately death. And Jesus himself was hated by many. He was mocked and scorned, and he suffered great pain and ultimately the death of a criminal. So Jesus, in this statement, is definitely not out of bounds to say, no matter where you're at with me, you can still expect some troubles in this life, but you can have peace through it all. In other words, don't be surprised, but also don't be afraid. Because Jesus has the final say. He's already overcome the world, and someday soon, he's going to make it all right. But I think there's a really important point that I want us to take out of this. That the troubles we face in this world, and there will be troubles, are not a reflection of our faith. That's where we often make this, this mistake, that the hardships you face are a direct relation to your faith. That I must have done something wrong, so God is punishing me. Or I didn't believe hard enough, and so I'm facing this, this trial. If that's your belief, you're always going to be confused when the tough times come. Because there's no biblical idea that if we have a strong enough faith, we're guaranteed to experience less hardships in this life. Sometimes it can be exactly the opposite. And the truth is... That no matter what path you follow, whether you're a Christian or not, there will be pain and trouble in this world. There will be. How we respond to it has great implications to our faith. Because the reality is we live in a fallen and in a broken world. And the consequences of sin are real. And by that, I don't mean that, that every hardship you face is a consequence of your personal sin. That's another line of thinking that's very dangerous. At times, it certainly could be true. Our personal decisions have personal consequences. But in the world, because of sin, in a general sense, ever since the fall, we've experienced pain and sickness and death. Relationships are in turmoil. We're living in a war zone essentially, a spiritual war zone. The devil is scheming and lurking, seeking to kill and destroy. And there's a battle right now for all of us that one day we will have an eternity that is, by all measures, easy and comfortable and peaceful, or an eternity that is only suffering and turmoil. That's the world we live in as of now. And at the right time, God will put an end to all of that. He will make all things new. But until then, it's no small wonder that Jesus says what he says. In this world, you will have trouble. Plan on it. But keep peace through it. And keep hope, knowing that he's overcome all of it. That really brings us to our next point. And this is going to be out of Revelation. This is almost at the end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. That God does not delight in our hardships. He longs to make everything new. 
And so if you're one that's going through a tough time and you're thinking, God is just picking on me, or God has forgot about me, we read in the book of Psalms that God is keeping track of every hardship you've, you've gone through. It's not a surprise to him. And he's keeping your tears in a bottle. He knows where you're at. And then in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, Jesus shares that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of me, for theirs is the kingdom of God. God knows exactly what you're going through, and God grieves with those who grieves. And so we read in the book of Revelation here, this is really talking about the end. When, the, when Jesus comes back and, and he establishes his kingdom fully on this, in this world, it will be a new heaven and a new earth. So Revelation 21.4 says that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So this again, if you're viewing your, your trials and your hardships as, as only some sort of punishment or divine neglect, you've, you've lost sight of the bigger picture. The whole purpose in Jesus' coming was to conquer sin, to conquer death, and to build his kingdom so that he can make all things new. It wasn't so that we could live our best life now for a moment, but that he could give us new life forever. That right now we wipe our own tears, or maybe our, our loved ones do that with us, but God himself will be the one wiping away your tears and saying, you don't need those anymore. It's gone. All of those hardships and those trials are gone. And now all you will know is perfect peace, love, and joy. So if you are someone here today, if you are a Christian, a child of God, you're experiencing these hardships, just know this. God's not mad at you. God didn't forget about you. His concern for us is infinite, far more than we could ever imagine. And he loves you and he cares for you. And he's working at making all things right. And someday they will be. And it will be forever and ever and ever and ever. And our blink of an eye now of a life will seem so small and insignificant, whatever hardship you're going through now, compared to the surpassing glory of heaven. He does not delight in our hardships. He cares for each and every one of us. And he's longing to make it new. But until then, we live here in the world where we can expect troubles and hardships. And that's our last point today. Until that time, know that the trials you're facing, they have a deeper purpose than we can see in the moment. The old saying goes, God doesn't waste pain. He can use all things for his purposes. And God often uses these trials to change us and to mature us. We're going to be reading out of the book of James, chapter 1. But I read a, an article uh, by Tim Keller. You may know him. 
a very brilliant mind. He's able to kind of look at a lot of things and, and kind of compartmentalize them into the, the big picture and put it into to small uh, bullet points for us to understand. And, and he said that God responds to trials and hardships in three primary ways. The first is intervention. This would be miracles. This is where God provides some sort of healing for a sickness, a provision for your shortfalls, uh, protection. But know that miracles are always possible, but not always predictable. That God can do all these things. God has the power, and we should have faith that he can intercede at any moment in a miraculous way. But our level of faith does not guarantee a miracle. That we still have the need to trust in God and his timing and his provision and his intervention of our hardships. But I've seen it played out even in this congregation. I've, I've talked to many of you about these moments in your life of one family who was struggling uh, financially, who was behind on their bills, and uh, they got a, a, an envelope of money with the exact amount that they needed for that month. Another one who uh, was healed miraculously. Uh, there's another one who saw these relational strains. Uh, and overnight, their spouse kind of changed after years of praying. And there was reconciliation between the two. God works in this way. But in the same way, if we view miracles in proportion to our faith, we're always going to be confused. Because that's not really the way it works. Have faith that God can work in this way, but know sometimes he doesn't. And when he doesn't, then one of the ways he works is through interaction. What we see here is that God has us work through these valleys and these dark times so that we may help someone else at their darkest time. That he strengthens us, that he matures us. So now we can be the hands and the feet of God to help someone else who's going through the same thing. And the last one he says is internalization. And this is probably the most common way we see God work through hardships in our lives. That it becomes something to change us. That we are having these hardships and they're used to shape and form us. And this is often the most difficult way to work through hardships because that means trusting. It means following even when it doesn't make sense. It means obeying his commands, even when it feels like you're doing something wrong. But God has a purpose for trials, and that purpose can only be accomplished if we respond in the right way. And so we see that concept spelled out here in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Where James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. So we see these concepts really just from the first couple of verses, 2 and 3. That we're supposed to consider it joy when we go through many kinds of trials. And that, at times, is kind of hard to understand. Am I supposed to be happy that all these difficult things are happening in my life? Well, I don't think that's what it means, is that we should never be saddened. In fact, that's a misconception we're we'll tackling in the future here. But joy is not so much of emotion as it is a perspective and a choice. 
that through joy we can see the bigger picture, know that God is working all things together for his good, and that there's a greater purpose to this trial than we may know in the moment. And these are trials of many kinds, which shows this really is a wide net. It's not just persecution, it's not just temptations, but maybe it's sickness or loneliness or bereavement or disappointment. Whatever it is, the trial you're going through, you can keep the attitude of joy knowing there's, there's a bigger purpose that God has in store. That the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And this test really is just talking about these difficulties that God is using to form us. And perseverance really is essential to our faith. It's what helps us make it through those moments. If there's no perseverance or endurance in your faith, the, the, faith, the, the first time you meet a hardship, you just say, yep, I'm done. That wasn't for me. Perseverance is crucial. And this is where we see that faith is like a muscle. Right? Perseverance has an athletic connotation in this language. Faith is like a muscle, and it'll only become stronger when it's exercised facing some form of resistance. It's really only through trials and hardships that we gain perseverance or endurance in our faith. But perseverance is not the final product of trials. In verse 4, it tells us that perseverance finishes its work so that we may be mature and complete. So the whole concept here is that we can keep joy through trials because trials make us stronger and ultimately more mature and complete. Trials and hardships serve as a path to Christian growth. And in my observation, those with the, the deepest faith and unwavering faith have typically had a pretty tough life. It's not required to be a strong Christian, but it definitely is like a supercharge to your faith when you walk through these things. Trials and hardships are not easy, right? That's why they call them hardships. But they often have a greater purpose than we know in the time. And ultimately, they deepen our faith, strengthen our trust, and grow our maturity in God. Now, I really hope for you today that this wasn't a bummer sermon for you. <laughs> okay? I would have loved to share that if you are a follower of Christ, or if you put your faith in Christ today... Uh, you're going to find a crisp $100 bill in the parking lot and hit every green light on the way home. Right? That would be a great sermon to, to give and to hear. But the reality is that if you don't have your expectations set correctly, you're always going to be confused and disappointed in your faith. Now, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He has a perfect and divine will for your life if you are a child of God. And he can do immeasurably more than you could ever ask for or imagine. Those are the things we hold on to and know that during the difficult seasons, this isn't the way it's going to be forever. But Jesus never promised it was going to be easy, but he did promise it was going to be possible and it was going to be worth it. If you believe that your general ease of life is a direct uh, reflection of your faith, again, this is something that's going to only confuse you and eventually maybe unravel your faith if something starts going wrong. But we believe that Jesus is going to return, that the things that grieve us also grieve God, 
that he is working to make all things new, and one day there will be no sadness and only joy. But until then, we keep an attitude, a perspective of joy, knowing that God is using even the worst moments of our life for his glory. But no matter how difficult life may feel, we must remember that Jesus already bore our greatest burden. Okay, that's what he did on the cross for us. Our greatest difficulty in life was our sin, and with it, our eternal consequences that are insurmountable for any of us. Jesus took that from us. He paid the price for our sins on the cross so that we no longer will die, but live through him. And that's what we celebrate together as we move into a time of communion. We remember that great and perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice that no matter how difficult or uneasy our life is, we will have an eternity that is full of peace and joy. Now, all of the wrath of God that we deserved for our sins was put on Jesus on the cross until he died and said, it is finished. Okay, and if you're going through tough times now, God is not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. And that's why he sent his one and only son. If there's any part of the Christian life it's, that's easy, it's this. Just putting your faith in him and believing that his sacrifice was enough. That we don't have to work for it or earn it. We don't need to impress God or please God with our life or our attitudes. We don't need to search for some deep or hidden truth. He makes it very plain and easy for us to understand. Our sin deserved death. Jesus died for us. And now we can live forever with him. In the book of 2 Corinthians, it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if you believe in Jesus, if you are a child of God, God the Father looks at you and sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. The work of the cross has made you completely holy and clean and blameless before God. And this is the good news. The record of your sin has been destroyed and you've been made right with God. And Jesus paid everything for you on the cross. His sorrows, his suffering are more than any of us could ever imagine, but he bore that burden for you. Now, when we celebrate communion, what we are doing is remembering that sacrifice he made, the, the body and the blood of Christ as he became that perfect sacrifice for us all. And in our church, we believe that the, the bread and the cup these are symbolic of Jesus. It, it's a, a reminder for us. It's an ordinance of Christ that we do this often as we remember his sacrifice. But it's also a time that leads us to introspection and self-reflection. And so what we do here is take a moment just to, in the quietness of our own hearts, just talk with God, to examine ourselves, to confess our sins, to really thank him for what he did on the cross. And we don't have any kind of membership requirements here. Uh, we just ask that if you participate in communion, that you are a believer 
in Jesus. And if you're not at that point yet, I'm going to give you that opportunity in a moment. But let's just bow our heads now, close our eyes in the quietness of our hearts, just examine ourselves before the Lord. Lord, as we reflect on our lives, on, uh, as we reflect on the life you gave for us, that it's a humbling experience to know that you loved us all so deeply. Your care and concern for us is unthinkable that you would send your son to die for us, to be our substitute that we may live with you forever. And God, it is quite a, a simple thing to say, I can't do this myself. No matter how hard I try, I can't do this myself. My sin is too great. So Lord, I, I pray for those who, who haven't made that decision yet to follow you. And that they would come to the point of just stop trying so hard to earn it themselves. And start trusting in you. God, if any of them are here, that they would just pray now that they understand they have sinned against you, that they ask for forgiveness of that sin, and they trust in you, Jesus, as Lord, as the perfect sacrifice who paid that sin, and that they would now not just believe in you, but follow you, that they would be the, your disciple. And God, you promised through all of that, if we make that commitment, we have that faith in you, that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, and you see us through all the uh, thicks and the thins of life, but God, we ultimately think about eternity, knowing that, that those who have that faith will spend eternity with you forever when you yourself will wipe all the tears from our eyes. So God, we thank you. We thank you for that. We pray that you'd strengthen in us our faith, that you, we dedicate this communion to you and speak into our hearts and our lives as we remember the sacrifice you made. We pray this in your name. Amen.